This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you should know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. If you haven't been there yet, check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. You know, there's a lot of different ways people... Um, come on this show. Sometimes there are people that I've sought out and really wanted to talk to. Sometimes there's people that I was not otherwise aware of who have books or shows or something coming out and reach out to me. And then there are people like Peter Corbett who reach out to me, have nothing to sell, nothing to hawk, no tangible gain to their being on this show, not looking to be famous, not looking to be... and, And again, these are not saying that everyone else is looking to be famous. I'm not denigrating those that <laughs> kind of are on the show for more traditional reasons. It's just Peter was truly an exceptional um, kind of guest because there's very little, if anything, in this for him. Peter was a you know, 20-plus-year veteran of the South Portland, Maine Police Department, had by his own say-so a very you know, typical law enforcement career, obviously punctuated by fistfights, violence, you know, drugs, traffic stops, paperwork, report writing, all the typical stuff that makes up a law enforcement career. He was also part on scene for an officer-involved shooting. That obviously is a little exceptional. But what was so compelling about Peter's story is the way that what should be a relatively routine career culminated in a significant mental health struggle that led to his medical retirement. The lessons in this episode for everyone in the profession of arms and for those that want to understand the profession of arms I think are deep and profound. Peter is not coming into this as a subject matter expert. He's not coming to this as a well-spoken, highly polished, you know, uh, uh, psychology PhD or, or psychiatrist or, you know, someone who's studied this academically. He's coming into it with the raw, heartfelt, sincere 
point of view of someone trying to help his own community after what he's been through. Um, I'm not going to say too much more on it. It's just good to hear from him. Uh, as we walk through the normal struggles of people doing the exceptional work of not just the profession of arms in general, but law enforcement in particular. I am Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Peter Corbett's Profile in Havoc. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you. I'm glad we're doing this because this is a first for us. I mean, you know, we were just talking offline about, you know, your, your, your involvement with Havoc and the way you've learned about Havoc and all that and the lack of sometimes public safety stuff that we talk about. And I'm glad we're, we're getting you on. We've, that has not been a target-rich environment for us on the show. So this will be cool to dive into this stuff, man. I'm really glad we can do it. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Let's start at the very beginning. Where are you from? South Portland, Maine, up on the East Coast. Think about a, well, hour and a half drive from Boston, if that helps out for people. Were you born and raised in Portland? Uh, South Portland. Oh, it's, uh, south, it's its own thing, South Portland. Okay. It, it, yes, gotcha. we, we are. Okay. We are south of a great city, as they like to say. We have our own police department, fire department, all that good stuff. Actually, our, our dispatch center for the town I used to work with is over there. But otherwise, yeah, we're our own city and do our own thing. Okay. And that, I, yeah, born right in South Portland, went to high school there, all my schools there, went away to college for a short time and came back to a local college, University of Southern Maine, where I met my eventual wife. Uh, there. I guess there's no other way to ask him but say, <laughs> why? Why, why, do you, why did you come back to your hometown? Because it seems like there's you know people that are desperate to run away from their hometown, and then there's something that does magnetize people, make them want to stay in the place where they were born. For you, what was that? Why did South Portland remain the epicenter of your life? Uh, well, when I went away to school, <clears throat> I went to Merrimack College in Massachusetts. It, it just wasn't the right fit for me. My grades weren't great, not for lack of trying, but it just, it wasn't a good fit. So after about a year and a half, I came back and then transferred right into Uni University of Southern Maine, stayed home for that would be spring semester, and then moved into the dorms for, I guess, what would be maybe my junior-esque year but i started running track indoor track again they just built a new field house so they had an indoor track program and i ran through high school and middle school so it kind of <clears> got <throat> me back into that mm -hmm. uh and then my would-be wife she was a runner too so it, it kind of built that structure and stuff that i was used to and eventually i found criminology as a major too because i was kind of struggling at that age of what I want to do with yeah. my life, essentially. Yeah. And and I think sometimes society, this is obviously my view, kind of forces kids a little <clears> like, <throat> oh, hey, what do you want to do? You're 18, 17, coming out of high school. And that's a lot of pressure. And sometimes it takes a little time. And I think I fit into that mold. Like, we just took a little time to come around. And it wasn't until uh, I had my, our first, we had our first son, like, oh, man, 
I have some responsibility. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I stopped running because I had more experience than my wife. And then that's kind of like I started getting to that mindset of a career field, if you will. And yeah, that's when I came home and eventually stayed in the area. My wife was from a couple hours away and we're like, nope, we're not going back where I came from. Yeah. So we just we just stayed in the area because she liked it. And obviously I was liked it because it's where I'm from and uh, we live in the same town. So what what drew you to law enforcement besides the fact that obviously you need the, the practical considerations and you need a job and all that? Yeah. What was it that appealed to you? My brother, <clears throat> my older brother, I have an older brother and a younger brother, but my older brother, it was something he always wanted to do. Kind of that person. I always want to do dot, dot, dot. That was something he always wanted to do from the time I can remember. So I think it was an exposure. I know it was an exposure thing for me over time. Not that I'm like, oh, I have a family now. I need to do something. Right. Uh, you, you, there's a lot of other jobs you can choose that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that will provide for a family. So I started just going on ride-alongs with him in his town where he might have we was a reserve, I think, and then the town where he ended up, which is also South Portland, <clears throat> and then some other towns where he knew people. So kind of getting some different views. So I think it was just that exposure um, after a while. And I'd worked in some kind of mental health group homes, kids who were in state custody. So at least had that kind of behavior management mindset and not that I knew that's what law enforcement would turn into all the time, uh, right. but yeah, just that exposure to the job itself. And I'm like, maybe I could try this out. So I was a reserve, kind of give it a test run in another town. And then I'm like, I mean, he was just a shock that I mentioned. I'm like, yeah, yeah I think right. you could give right. this a go. And it was a good run until it wasn't. Yeah, we'll it, get to it, that. We'll yeah, get to that. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Until it wasn't. But yeah, it was purely <clears throat> just... Just an exposure over time is literally what it was. Oh, he was that, and yeah, I wouldn't tried it out. <laughs> well, let's. So you mentioned that you had been doing work with what was it? it was, you said troubled kids. What, what was yeah, uh, kids who uh, been exposed uh, either <clears throat> abused uh, yeah. to trauma, probably physical yeah. or mental, and basically were in state custody. So they were either in therapeutic foster homes, was one agency, and the other was foster homes itself. So it was a group setting with probably five or six kids. And then the staff rotated out. And I probably wasn't the most nurturing, but I was a little more strict in that setting. And which I think the kids needed both. Not everybody can be the lovey dubby. And I was on the more stricter side. And probably that's, I drift that over to my later preschool. Why, why were you gravitating towards that work to begin with? I mean, that's, I mean, you talk about you know, there's a lot of other jobs a person could have. There's a yeah. lot of other jobs people could have than, than dealing with that. Again, I think when we first had our first son, we had a friend who's like, oh, I'm getting a job here because she was a friend of ours we ran with. And like, hey, how about this company? And it was just another exposure thing. I'd done like rec camps and uh, worked a lot of youth programs through the city <clears throat> rec program. So I'd always <clears throat> kind of been involved working with kids. And so it just gravitated to kind of working with the troubled kids as I grew older. Uh, and it was natural finding that balance of just working with the ones with mental health issues. Right. Um, what would, How did that strike you? I mean, especially if you'd had experience working with kids, presumably more well-adjusted kids in more yeah. stable environments, now shifting into that where they're in state custody. I what did that do to you mentally? What did it do to your outlook? What did it do to your perception of 
the world or of the threat picture? I mean, what what did that mean for you? It's more hindsight now. Probably the sure. first person to ask that question. Sure. Um, when you read the files, you're kind of like, <clears throat> oh, oh man, you understand why people behave the way they do. Um, like these kids never had a chance. The home I worked in for one agency, there was high school kids. So you could actually start talking to them and have that conversation. So it's sometimes when they're younger, maybe uh, elementary age, it's, it was a little harder, which was the first agency I worked with. Uh, the second one was high school age kids. You could, hey, you need to be accountable for your decisions, regardless of your upbringing. Uh, and you're kind of stuck with us as your de facto, yeah. de facto parents, if you will. So and that's what I liked about that age. You're like, hey, you're in that transition <coughs> where you can be held accountable, <coughs> but you kind of see or could read about their history and try to find that balance of tough love, if you will. But hey, how are you going to proceed through life, if you will, or, the, or that next phase? Probably a better way to say it. How were you finding the rapport with you and the kids? Like, did you did you feel like you had a natural rapport with them? I know you say you're more of a disciplinarian, but yeah, what was that uh, like? I think over time they understood what role I took. That I was kind of more on the stricter side. That they weren't able to push the limits of the house rules. Just they knew that I wanted a future career in law enforcement, but that wasn't what I was there that I wasn't the head honcho guy. I mean, I'm five, six, and probably back then, 150 on a good day. So I wasn't oh, this yeah. large figure, male figure walking around. They just accepted that. And it wasn't a big deal for them versus other people. I mean, there was male and female staff. So I think what they needed in that particular moment, they went to each staff. I mean, not for manipulation, but just like, oh, hey. I, I just <clears throat> shoot straight them, if you will. Hey, you did yeah. this. Here are the consequences, and that—that's kind of what they got. And otherwise, it was well, okay. Hey, we can have fun, but when it's time to have discipline, right. you know what you, you know right. what you were going to get from me. Right. And that seemed to work over the years that I was with that group. And this was in South Portland. No, this was there's a few towns over. Okay, uh, so. So what was the demographics? What were the, and it's specifically about the problem sets. Like what kind of problems were you seeing? And was this widespread? Was this an area where the problems you're seeing with the kids, it's like, oh yeah, this, these are bad towns. These are, these are rough areas. Or was it kind uh, of an aggregate coming from all over the state? Yeah, mostly all over the state, mostly where they <clears throat> find, I'll say housing, but beds Okay, and where they would fit. I mean, they would, yeah, they were, coming back i mean that was 20 years ago but yeah sure, uh, sure. It, it's just weird this particular agency could fit and how we believe they would integrate with the rest of the kids in the household because they didn't want to blend too many of the i want to say diagnoses just be mindful of other things that were going on so there was always a uh a complex thing so if we had too many of either one gender kind of want to keep that balanced i mean we could well it was a two-floor house so just always working on trying to keep a good balance of what was going on at that particular time you you did the best you could and ultimately they're all in the state of maine right right if you if you will care Um, so so you're seeing maine problems not necessarily localized town problems correct and some went to the local high school depending on how well they were doing and others went to a 
a school managed by that particular agency. So, and, and some did better at that agency's school because they'd never really been in a mainstream school because gotcha. yep. the, the people weren't like them. And all kids at that particular agency school had similar lifestyles and backgrounds. So I think it was easy for them to assimilate with each other. It's kind of what we saw. It was hard for them to kind of really blend into a, a public school at times. Sure. Or they they knew that it was like, oh, you're the kid or kids from the group home, which is not a normal way to yeah. to, to be raised <laughs> or live. The high school, right? It's tough to fit into high school with when that's how yeah. you're being introduced, right? Yeah, on a good day, it's hard. What alone, right. what everybody knows, you yeah. you you live in that house. I mean, I think we can only imagine that unless you've been in that particular environment. So that was that was interesting. Did you did you have any experience with use of force there? Did anything ever happen that exposed you to kind of where you were going to go in law enforcement and the kind of issues you'd face? No, they did give us a training when we started, but not at that particular house. <coughs> what when I'd filled in for some shifts uh, at one of their crisis units, we actually did some hands on because they're those particular clients will say were newer into their particular programs and they're trying to get stabilized uh, so there's some hands-on stuff but yeah five years i would say maybe one or two times and that's because i was filling in for filling in at a crisis unit but yeah almost no no hands-on with these kids it's like hey if you're flipping out out the door you go or yeah. i think they would have called the police the local agency yeah. um they might have done that, but not when I was working. So you were there for five years? Uh, it was about, yeah, it was about four years. Yeah, four to five years, I think, Okay, before, before I got hired. So how how far into that time had you started to actively apply for law enforcement jobs? It was probably about three years in, almost my entire okay. time. I think some people have that. You got picked up right away. Yeah. And then yeah, there's yeah. that other side that like... Mm -hmm. Oh, it's you again. Yeah, we'll see you this week at, at the PT yeah. test, at the right. interviews. So I fell into that second that second category where it, it took a little longer to get yeah. picked up. I mean, this is when the hiring pools were smaller versus when my brother got hired, there was 300 people taking a test. And my versus when I was doing it, it was maybe eight to 10 throughout each town. It was so small, the pools. Were. Why was that? Why was there such a difference? I just he had seven, six or seven years ahead of me. Just the the hiring people didn't want to be officers anymore. That's what it came down to. That nobody wanted to apply anywhere. So that that pool of like he had three people that they hired in his group. There was one person they were looking for when I got hired, and there was just nobody. People weren't applying anymore. Why was that though? What what changed? Uh, um, what was happening? I'm not really sure because uh, that was really before the current stuff we see now, where it's hard to bring in any qualified candidates, even if there are openings. Yeah, I'm not really sure what the what the issue was at that oh. point. But it, it basically had continued my entire career. You, you, you couldn't fill all the open spots because we'd continuously have, we'll say three or four spots and they could only find two or three candidates and it has drastically swung the other direction. Wow. And now we, what I earn, cause I still talk to some people they're like, yeah, we have spots and we can't 
find anybody will take people through the application process and like they either wash themselves out or as they get through their back tracks or whatever gotcha. or drop or drop out of the academy or get whatever right, uh, right in the academy process so it's yeah we're not the only agency or my former agency is not the only one that has that issue public safety is not the way to go anymore <clears throat> i guess so when you were applying did you only apply uh, how did it work do you apply to a specific department or did you apply to many different departments or do you just apply to one agency and then they'll put you wherever they feel like you're a best fit and you just go to one central academy like what's the process in Maine, you have to apply to each agency <clears throat> uh, to try and get hired. And then there's one central academy where okay. anybody of any law enforcement power uh, has to go to. So, it's your post training. Yeah. Yeah. So, Maine state troopers go there, sheriffs, Marine Patrol, basically anyone that carries a gun goes to this one academy. And they had changed that. So, my brother went to a different style. Uh, I don't think the troopers went to that academy and then they realized they needed to do a change. So anyone that's a certified law enforcement goes to yep. this one 18 weeks. And then if you need some Marine patrol, go do their specialized troopers, right. it would do their thing. And then obviously have your own FTL gig afterwards within your agency. So yeah, everyone goes to that one 18 weeks. So you have to apply to this agency, this agency, this agency, basically see who takes you through the process. And um, how many did you apply to? How many different departments did you apply to? Geez, it was probably at least five or six. Wow. And, okay. and Maine only has two academies, at least at the time, they only have two academies a year. So there was one that runs about this time of year. <clears throat> it starts in early January. And then mine started in, I think, August. So August to like December. So you got to try to make sure you get into one of those or you have to wait another almost six months sometimes to get into a program. Right. So, and some, some departments will bring you in to get you on payroll. So you don't get picked up. So it's, it's kind of a interesting process sometimes. Yeah. What did, so it was kind of happenstance that you ended up getting picked up by South Portland. Then. Yeah. And, and okay. they are a bigger agency. I'd say they're probably fourth or fifth bigger agency in the state. And then you oh, get really? to re really rule uh, agencies after that or smaller ones. So, I mean, we're not, they, they're not big by any standard nationwide, right. Right. but by Maine. So, and I grew up in the town. So, I mean, there's kind of yeah. that. Some some people say no, and it, I was okay with that. What's What was the reputation of South Portland as far as the police work went was it a sign was it a choice assignment do people like man i hope i get south portland uh was it considered like a high threat assignment was it like what was the reputation of getting a gig in south uh, portland i i think people liked it if they <clears> got picked up by south portland a lot of times you were just happy to get a job at that point like oh and then if you wanted to jump to another agency that would happen you would at that time you would see people either go to the state police or federal maybe occasionally important because you would only go up for more opportunities so now people tend to leave for different reasons uh, we've seen that as a change but there wasn't a lot of people leaving when i first started and now i think you see a little more turnover for personal reasons, whatever. So yeah, there was, there's a big mix of residential business. And then we have 
the 95 turnpike and a break off of it. So there's some highways. So a little mix of everything and a fully staffed fire department. So there's a lot of a mix of that and hotel stuff. So if you want it, there's stuff to do. <laughs> yeah. What, what, I mean, so just, I guess, business wise, like what's the, what's the layout of South Portland? What is it known for? Is it a tourist destination? Is it a, a restaurant spot? Is it a, like what, I, what, how, yeah, how did how did you guys view it? I, yeah, I would say uh, it's kind of a cut through area oh, okay. because, because right. there's an airport that Portland has. Um, so we have most of the runway on our side. So we have that potential topic. There's some industrial stuff. There's a mall section. So a lot of restaurants over by, I'd say, where the turnpike is. If you were on the ocean, so we have all of that. There used to be a bigger oil pipeline topic stuff coming through. So we have a lot of marine stuff. And then there's Portland Headlight and Cape Elizabeth. So there's a lot of touristy stuff during the summer heading to the beaches. So yeah, people passing through for different reasons or coming off the pike and then heading north to either the state parks, depending on what you want to do. So, I mean, it says vacation land on our, on our yeah. license plate. So it uh, depends yeah. on where you want to go or as we just wait here, we just don't recognize, but we have sometimes. So, and how did it intersect with what you'd what you had seen of South Portland growing up there? I mean, did you suddenly have a different lens of it? You're like, oh crap, this is actually yeah. more dangerous, or oh, I didn't realize this stuff was going on, or like, what was, I, how were your eyes getting opened? I think the biggest surprise was the drug issue because we have also Route One that cuts through another section of the town, U.S. Route One, so it goes from the part of Maine all the way to Florida. So the hotels generally where you'd see the drugs, the hardcore drugs at that point, cocaine, meth, and what you could come up with traffic stops or within the hotels and the activities that go in on the hotels. So we're not talking, are we talking about high-end hotels or, or reputable hotels? Or are we talking about hotel, motel? I would say, I would say definitely low-end motels and then just regular three-star four-star hotels oh, okay. uh, yes yeah, so right. just where you would just i'd say name brand hotels i mean i'm not gonna yeah, yeah, throw anybody right. under the yeah, bus sure. but i mean yeah. where you would stop in if you were on vacation for coming for like a wedding or something and if you didn't know any better you'd be like oh no big deal but on the overnights you're like yeah there's a party and then you get go get into the room you're like oh this is what's going on or Whoa. overdose and then the overdose stuff just became everyday stuff and then and, and were these drugs was it from local dealers or was it stuff that was kind of being trafficked through south portland uh, I, how, how much I, were you guys growing your own your own I, bad issues and how much were you just a, a crossover spot my understanding uh it was coming up the pike from well i don't want to blame mass but it was at least coming up from mass to start with massachusetts okay now i wouldn't be surprised if it's more in state as well but definitely coming up the pike stopping in the hotels and then if it goes further up the turnpike it would continue on but yeah definitely the drugs is like this is the one thing that surprised me obviously there's yeah. violence i wouldn't say a lot of gun violence so no shootings and stuff but the drugs in the hotels was definitely they're like oh this is mm. not what they put out on the, the city website, if you will. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I worked overnights for the first probably two or three years. So that's where 
you first see it and then the white second shift. So not the sunny, happy, fun right. stuff that you see on one side of the city, which is more right. residential. And it transitions as you head kind of west. It's yeah, that, that was the surprise when I are first there, got into it. Are, are there slums in South Portland? Are there very are there like, you know, section nine housing, anything like that? Or is that not really an issue? I wouldn't say it's an issue. There was some we have some big apartment complexes, but I wouldn't say anything that you would call um slums by any okay. sense. It's from the outside. They're they're all well kept. And then the very middle any, class, very middle class environment. Very middle class. There are some, I would say, some lower class issues, but the people that run them, more like corporations, they're they've done good over the years to kind of like if this is a problem tenant in the city has come up with ordinances. So I wouldn't say any true slums like you'd think of in the major cities, which is you know that that's that makes sense. I I guess who were you finding? As the users, I say that uh, knowing I'm asking somebody who grew up in the town. I mean, you would presumably know, if not by name, you would know if people were like from South Portland. Is that generally the kind of folks that you were seeing get caught up in this or were these out of towners? I would say mostly, I would say mix, actually. Uh, People who, who didn't want to use at their homes and then if they were selling or partaking in the business. We'd see them in their, in the hotels, motels. Okay. Uh, and then people passing through for whatever reason. It was kind of a mix at times is what I, we tended to see. But yeah, some state people as well. Yeah. I think I'm that a- the, tur- the turnpike had that effect. Sure. Jump, jump on and then go right back where you yeah. are heading to, wherever that may Absolutely. be. Absolutely. Yeah. Good egress routes and all that. What, how much did it help that you were from South Portland? Did you feel like you already had an innate understanding of the of the city and where you needed to go and who was who and what right looked like? Yeah, except for just getting around. I mean, because that's, I think, okay. can be the most stressful part uh, uh, when you get in with an agency. And this is kind of before we had all the iPhones and right. GPSs. Uh, right, right, right. When you were handed a folder of the roadmaps, I mean, of like the street names, uh, you didn't have to grab it as much. You're like, oh. yeah. Yeah, I, I know where that is. Or uh, so that was easier. That's probably I didn't really come across a lot of people that I grew up with or knew in particular situations. I think I only rested a few that I actually went to high school with. So, and then the people I came across with, they tended it was just random situations. It wasn't in that criminal esque type mm-hmm. thing. So it was either accidents or just passing through, and then you just would have the conversation. So. Yeah, it's always easier when you know the stuff and the yeah. what's going on. Like, oh, this is the feel of this neighborhood or that particular one. This is the the vibe, like you said. You just kind of knew this is the style of this what goes on this part of Main Street or this end. Like the other major road is Broadway and it literally cuts from the ocean end all the way over to the next town over. So, I mean, it's just kind of, it's a transition road and that and Main Street kind of intersect. So you just kind of, you just kind of get the feel, like say the hair in the back of your neck type of stuff. So, and you know, just all the cut through roads because you, you you grew up on that type of stuff. And then, yeah, who kind of may stick out of place. At right, 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 right. <laughs> I want to also make sure we cover, before we get into kind of the bulk of your career, how did it feel to be a cop? 
how were you were you taking to it were you enjoying it was it like what, what was it emotionally how did, how was it feeling for you to join the uh, force and actually be a leo it it was actually different because people would say oh wait you're you're a cop because i was i was a lifelong introvert still am so going into a profession that is very extroverted we have marked cruisers i mean that, that is everything people who knew me from high school and my entire life were like yeah, wait you're you're a cop too like for or i mean i did the same shifts with my brother for a little while they're like wait there's two corbett's working huh. so it was very interesting to kind of see that perception on people and i just had my own style once i kind of found my style and you get over that initial like wow there's a lot going on there's a lot of responsibility mm. i mean it was the i think it was at the academy the cadre said you kind of have more responsibility power than the president you can take yeah. someone's life away in a second and you can take the freedom away in a second and we didn't need permission from our supervisors to to make those calls we could do that so once i really gained that awesomeness of the job and the responsibility and found my own kind of my own path and what i was comfortable with and found my groove i enjoyed it i knew i was a enjoyed the mental health calls and i think it came from working in those group homes yeah. and that side but when it was time to say dance and go hands on go hands on and then when it was time to stop it was time to stop someone in custody or if mental health calls it was time to bring them to the hospital whatever so finding my own path i think was a big part and really just enjoying enjoying the job i mean the rush of lights and sirens mm. processing what i'm going to do looking at the the computer screen kind of hearing dispatch looking around i mean that's the part i i miss is just kind of taking all that in so that was that was the fun part is is why you sign up i mean it's the cheesy part what they say like i want to go and help people but it's essentially what it was yeah. helping yeah. people interact with people in the town that you grew up with and then kind of surprising the ones you're like what you do this yeah. like yeah how yeah. you been doing well, yeah. five years 10 years i mean whatever it was at that right. time that i um, mean did a job that a lot of people don't sign up for and uh made a good career out of it what how are you getting along with the other officers when you when you first joined and then the first couple of years of your career was it that you talked about yourself as an introvert did you find that you were perfectly balanced enough that you still had good rapport with people in the department or did you find hey i've got to kind of have a bit more extroverted personality just to find that camaraderie or like what was the dynamic working with um, other officers I think I just sat back and watched. I think they were watching me. I think mm. once you prove yourself on some calls, more the the hyped up calls, I think is when they kind of like, okay, he's not here just because he wanted to try something that his brother was doing. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. He he can do this job for himself. He can talk. He's not just gonna fight because we've all heard of seen officers that just go hands-on maybe a little too quick even if it's within the bounds of policy or they hear from someone like oh hey he did a good job on that call and it, it kind of goes through the brother or whatever or yeah. dispatches hey the brother was 
clear and concise on the radio, mm. which we all, we all get jambled up on the radio each. So okay. now I go, once that kind of settled in and like people see, oh, he can kind of do it much like any other job, but obviously these have a little more responsibility and you're visible uh, to the public too. Uh, I think that was the key point once you kind of prove to each other and then you watch how that cycle goes when other people come in and like, oh, now I see what happened. People kind of ride you a little and then you watch what happens like, God, I hope I don't do that or just you, yeah, you be yeah. you be careful and you you just watch to make sure you're not making the dumb mistakes that might get you hurt and then you understand like oh, man i'm not making that dumb mistake again because right, right. there's a there's a reason why maybe they were giving me so much shit if you <laughs> right, uh, right because it because people get hurt um yeah. so we've always had some form of recording stuff before we've got the either digital recorders or body cameras and stuff so what did you use what did you use initially as recording devices uh, i think we had i was like dash cams think, yeah there was dash cams which are uh, i think they'd already got rid of the vhs recorders but it was always like an icop and then i think we we're one of the early agencies to go with the body cameras and for me it wasn't a big deal it's just more how to integrate it into how what I was wearing was a good yeah. place for it. I knew I wasn't doing anything that wasn't an issue, and you could always go back and review it. So it was, it was just another tool. I mean, whatever, give it to us, and I want to keep having a paycheck. So you just sure, threw, sure, sure threw it on. Really, what as a young cop, your first, your rookie year, even your first couple of years, what mistakes were you making? What do, what do you think was the biggest learning curve you had to go on? I I would say having that confidence that you could do it mm. like the like letting go of the the hesitation of kind of proving the doubters wrong just going with the training like i remember kind of thinking like the calls that always worked out the best is when you just went and kind of let the mind do what it was supposed to the old mm. muscle memory even mm. if you weren't physically doing anything yet yeah. uh, because it happened so quick in essence uh, versus you had to drive across town. Um, I don't know if it's, we'll say it's a maybe five or six mile drive across town, but if you're stuck in traffic, obviously it takes a little longer, but yeah, when you just started yeah, magic confidence just kicked in at some point where you're like, Oh, was that too much, too little? Did I talk too much? Mm. Like, no, maybe you shouldn't bring your witness statement in right away and just start talking to people. Just deal with the situation initially and not overthink things and just simplify things is what I remember getting to because you could see your coworkers go kind of like without that saying anything. And then you're like, okay, you, you just kind of start walking a little different. Um, and just get into that. Oh, I have that confidence now. I mean, all that stuff we're not supposed to say, but what are you like at some point you just kind of like, Oh, I know what I'm doing. Uh, and if I don't, I don't have a problem asking the question, what are we supposed to do? Uh, even year 10, 15 until I was done. Sure. Uh, Cause this stuff is always changing, but you, you just kind of, um, you always remember hated being new and then remembered when that newness was really gone and you were comfortable being out there i say alone but we would generally the minimum was four 
officers plus a supervisor or two. So there was always people around. Wow. And that was, and you asked like about applying before. Uh, I didn't want to be in a rural town. Um, there was something about always having backup around. And where I worked, there was always agencies around. So we were good with mutual aid. So that was, I think, important too. There was always someone to bounce ideas off mm. and hey, show up on this call, even if it wasn't a two-person yeah. call. There was always that. So I think that learning was always there, even if you just were showing up just to pay attention to what was going on. That makes sense. What What did you, what was the moment, if there was one, that you felt, okay, I'm good. I'm on point. My confidence is where it needs to be. I I know my left and right limits on this job. Like, was there an incident that brought that home, or was there a moment at which you really felt that and were like, I've, I've rounded the corner? Yeah, it was. It was an overnight. I, I don't know if we were looking for a particular person. It was in the Main Street area, but I put this guy who's just hanging around verbally down on the ground he was riding a bike but he was an adult and come to find out he was one of the city's more repeat customers yeah. we'll say and he had fought with the cops many times but where i was still in the new stage of my career i didn't know who he was to the point where i still had to read his name off the id like uh. oh it's so and so where everyone else would have been like, oh, yeah, that's so-and-so. We know his right. date of birth by right. memory. Right. And uh, over time, I would come to know that information. Like, you know, when you know somebody else's birthday and name and where they're from. Yeah. And I kind of started with it a little. That's when the dispatcher goes, hey, just to let you know, your brother handled his shit pretty well on that call. Even though he had nothing to do. Like, hey, dude, what are you doing here? We're doing something. If you have no business and you don't live around here, feet feet somewhere else. And if I'd probably talked to him in a different tone, he probably would have scuffled with us. And he had in the past, apparently. And then they're like, oh, yeah, that's that dude. Like, oh, now I get it. So that was kind of that turning point where it turned. And if I had approached it differently or even knew who he was, you might have addressed it differently yeah uh, and then i think whenever you get your first fight i've never been in a fight in my life i don't know when it was that first one but when you get the like oh this is what it's like being in a scuffle with somebody and throwing cuffs on and go oh what was it yeah what was the situation i honestly i don't know but when you get that first scuffle with somebody and you come out on the other side you're like oh you get them in cuffs you're like Oh, you don't want to admit it, but that was kind of fun. <laughs> it's a rush. You can breathe and yard sale most of your equipment, but you, you and your partner, I mean, we're single cars, but you and your coworker made it and you're like, oh, we, we can do this. I mean, I didn't get in a lot of scuffle, maybe because I talked my way out through the process when we needed to arrest people, but you kind of enjoyed that side of the job as well. Yeah. I, I don't remember the first time I got in one, but kind of when you're like, okay, I, I have the skills or, or can do this. It's kind of like just that imaginary thing. Mm-hmm. You don't know when it happened. Remember when you're like, oh, I'm comfortable, not the cocky side, because you're obviously never comfortable in that job. But you're like, okay, this is this is good. What what were you weakest at? 
what did you worry like God, I really got to do work on this? <laughs> Every supervisor is ringing in right now. Uh, writing reports. Okay. It, it just it just wasn't my thing. I would try my darndest and I'm probably still in the wheelhouse for the most rejected reports. And then I would just continue to correct the errors. I don't know how or why. I think I would think faster than I could type. And then it just, I just didn't have that proofreading skill in my, in my wheelhouse, which is ironic because both of my sons are good writers, readers, but for whatever reason, that skill never has never got to me and as you probably know there's a lot of report writing <laughs> right, right invoice work so yeah that that was just it was something that i could never grasp gotcha. unfortunately so as you were as your career was maturing so they start you what on night shifts doing overnights in a single uh yeah you do fto at that mm-hmm. time it was it was a different program so i was with pretty much the same guy for eight weeks and then straight overnights until people go to other assignments or they hire more people and you progress through the three shifts. Um, so how long, how long were you on overnights? I think I did like three years on wow. from 11 to seven. And then there was, I got lucky. So they hired a bunch of like three groups of three. So if we had five people on a shift, it didn't take too long for me to move to that swing shift, which was three second shifts and two overnights. And then I was there for about, I think, two years, two and a half years, which was weird because you would have three second shifts, have 24 hours off, and then do the two overnights, essentially covering for the uh-huh. group that was on their days off. And then that was, like I said, probably two years, maybe three years. And then I went to straight seconds where I was there for a while, I would say. And then I think it was probably at the 10 years mark where I hit day shift because we had a lot of day shift officers retire, if my math is somewhat correct. And then our day shift got really young because of that reason, in a sense, where we had a lot of officers who had some significant time left. Uh, in Maine, most departments had a 25-year retirement um, program. So okay. um, if you went through a particular way you would put in your 25 years and then yeah, whatever yeah. your union had bargained for some places do have a 20 year system but so most Maybe people 25 well yeah we're most looking at the 25 years you know i didn't ask how big is the department how many officers did you uh, guys have full staff i think there are 55 officers where i'd say probably 35 ish are on the road so some detectives and some sent off to maybe one at a drug unit and one to a task force at a time or a computer task force. So a couple here and there, and then maybe some community services. And then a couple, one at the high school, one at the middle school for SROs. So Mm -hmm. a couple here, a couple there. So at at 10 years, you'd really spent all your time on patrol, Mm -hmm. right? What happened now when you moved to day shift? Did you aspire to do to go to a specialized unit or a specialized assignment, or were you happy doing patrol work? I was happy in patrol. I knew at that point, because of my not great report writing, I kind of had pigeonholed myself a little. So I, I was okay with that. 
I knew the detective wasn't my gig and the drug unit, it just wasn't for me. I'd been on the dive team for a little while at that point. So that was kind of a nice side assignment. We're trained once a month with Portland PD in their team. It's, it's big fishing industry and working waterfront. So plenty of piers, cruise ships come in. Our primary goal for the diving was search and recovery. So not a lot of no fences. So people would tend to fall in every so often. And there's a big so much now maybe a bar scene but a lot of restaurants so what people would go in or evidence we could go look for so city paid for most of my initial training so went good way to become a certified diver so there was that as a secondary skill um, so you like the physical stuff yeah you liked uh, it when you fought you like when you dive it's all the physical stuff right yeah and then at some point i had filled in a couple of times as an sro so I knew that was a school resource officer at the high school. Yeah. So kind of like, oh, maybe I'll do that. But yeah, I knew my my destiny was going to be the foot soldier on patrol for my career. And I was good with that. That's where the base of police work is. And without that, that's how the city operates. That's how a yeah. police department operates. I mean, so I think there's something to that too. But everybody kind of has their their own things. I want to be promoted. Some want to do this, want to do that. I don't like there's nothing wrong with being that. And I was cool with that. Did you feel like you really knew the land and land at that point? Like could you did you kind of understand all the ins and outs of South Portland at that point, 10 years in doing patrol? Like, I mean, you pretty much like if you're on a block, you know the second something is a little off, right? At that point. Yeah. I mean, you know. The different makeups, socioeconomical of each neighborhood and the transition, just how things flow over time. Yeah, you're pretty, using the word comfortable, but you understand how things are going. Um, yeah, pretty comfortable with with how the city with how the city operates within itself. The the how it lives and breathes. I think is a good way yeah, to say it. Yeah, yeah. What was the difference now on day shift? I mean, were was it different kinds of things? Was it a lot more, I don't know, traffic stops or stuff that what, you weren't dealing with as many kinetic situations or or did the work really stay the same? No, no, it's different. Obviously dealing with more smaller fences, stuff that happens on overnights and you're getting it reported during the daytime. One of my supervisors is like, hey, have, just have the contacts and i didn't mind doing the traffic stops i mean regardless if you wrote people or not and during some of that time i think the u.s had gone through i'll say depression but with some economic hardship so i wasn't going to write a 150 dollar ticket but let mm. me see a violation speeding hey take care of your stuff common line for me was hey what happens if we meet again you're going to write me a ticket okay i'm like I work five days a week and you you learn people's patterns right. just by nature yes. of the of the commuting public. So, I mean, people understood that. And if someone really needed a ticket, you give them the ticket. But that was the gig. And yes, yeah, so it was mostly occasionally there'd be a hot call. But when there was a real hot call on day shift, you did see that uh, a lot of deaths, people dying from just overnight like, I don't want to say the elderly population, but you became really good at writing death reports, just people who had passed away. You did start seeing the overdoses start creeping in a little over time to the point where we started carrying the Narcane. Well, 
And, uh, that was, what, and what is that? Tell people what that is. What is it? Uh, my non-science understanding is it blocks the reaction from opiates. And if it wasn't an opiate issue, there was no ill effect. So, and we have three fire stations and usually our rescue was there or engines and each had a paramedic. So it blocks that reaction and you could start medical stuff at that time. So we carried it pretty early and it wasn't uncommon to, to administer that. A lot of times a hotel would be sanitized, meaning any drug paraphernalia or drug itself was gone, but that was the nature. And I believe the law at that time was already, if they were calling for help, you couldn't charge them anyways. So, Oh, really? Yeah. So you couldn't write them for anything if you found it because we want people alive. So yeah, the Narcane is basically a blocker for the opiates in the most simplest form is my understanding. And now I think you can buy it at pharmacies as a common person. And I'm sure a lot of agents, not agencies, but social service agencies probably even give it away. So Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, so you're starting to see opioid abuse really start. And what year was this ballpark that you started seeing? Uh, if I was on day shift, I uh, will say um, 20, 10, 11, 12-ish yeah. probably is my guess. But that was really what fent- when fentanyl started to become a name, like people started to know what it is, right? Around that time? Yeah. And I think, I mean, we used to do the drug test in these little plastic pouches, put a sample in and snap it and to see if it was whatever. And we started getting away from that where the line officers weren't testing. And by the time I was still working the road, they were using the scanners from the fire department or would call one of our drug agents and use whatever it was in it, use a spectrum thing to see what the drug was. So we weren't even oh, wow. we, we wow. weren't even getting exposed because of the fentanyl issue or to minimize the exposure because you just didn't want to inhale it essentially for obviously the health reasons. Yeah. So yeah, you went from being the drugs to not even want to touching anything to just doing it much safe. I mean, obviously the fire stuff does it for the chemicals, but there was the drug database was in it. So you went from kind of hands on with the drugs, I mean, with gloves and stuff, but it was like, call this machine in and then let it it do the work. I mean, obviously it was good for court too, but yeah, the, the dangers of the drugs skyrocketed did you see any change in the criminal demographic in the area not just because of the opioids but also but just over time i mean did you start to go hey wow we didn't used to have whatever this many you know foreign nationals coming through or whatever you know that kind of thing yeah when i grew up south portland was very it looked just like me it was a very white community I mean, there's no other way to say it. Mm-hmm. Not, not very diverse, regardless of what socioeconomic group you were in. Mm-hmm. It was very white. Mm-hmm. No other way to say it. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. As is, I believe, this state. Yeah, right. Maine. They, right. They, yeah. They, they, call, they call Maine one of the whitest states. <laughs> right. um, and over time, it's become much more diverse. I don't know if it's because of funding, a lot of immigrants because uh, different charity groups have brought them in. Obviously, a lot of issues overseas have brought people in. So they'll come in from other towns because that's where they start. And just within the last couple of years, they were putting them different groups in the hotels for housing. 
Are these were these refugee groups, or are we talking migrants? I would say refugee groups, and then probably some migrants over time. Or I'm not sure where that change happened in the career, but now it's it's just a mixed population, which is perfectly fine. Uh, my wife yeah. works in a school, and now the schools as a school psych, and she needs a interpreter translator really? to, te- to test the kids and wow. you just would never have seen that a lot of the, the same issues i think you see maybe in the news these days where who's paying for these added populations but yeah i'm not sure uh when i started seeing the change uh in my career yeah. uh, uh, of the demographic change and what did it mean for crime did you see cr- the types of crimes change or was there really no difference it's just different people that are doing the same things yeah uh i think the crime stayed the same I'm trying to think back uh in conversation I might have had with our civilian person that kind of tracked the the, the crimes um it was, I think, basically the same stuff, the same crimes, and just people change. Just different like, people, yeah. Yeah, and they're, they're always trying to, like, oh, I think they actually commissioned a study recently, like, oh, why is South Portland, Portland, resting more people of color? And the officers are like, we're just going to the calls. Uh, <laughs> right, right. And, and I th- think that's sometimes hard for people to hear, like, they're working at night, like, you're just stopping the car. Right. for a violation um and you put whatever twist you want um i mean i'm apolitical i hate politics but the society does what they want and if supervisor goes go stop cars we go stop cars <laughs> right tickets or not that that's your gig and they're like yeah you're disproportionately like well the population's changing and we do what someone yeah. calls and says dot 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 when we come in with dot dot dot, that that's who we they yeah. they cough or I- interact with, right. and and that's what the numbers or the drop down things on the re- reports. I mean, it's uh, what this it's they you have to pick somebody. Yeah, so, well, I mean, d- uh, just anecdotally, I mean, I'm not expecting to have verse and chapter on the data, but just from what you could tell, did it seem like crime was increasing, decreasing, or just staying the same? I'd say my view, probably the same. I'd say maybe towards the end when I was off the road and I was able to sit back and watch a little more, there would be pockets or spurts of a particular incident where we never saw that before. That was, I don't want to say weird, but we never saw that, whatever that would be. Mike, man, that particular incident seems to be increasing which was weird people more stressed i mean through either covid or when there was the financial issues like man god i'm in a profession which is i don't say not unfireable but i mean yeah right you still have to have the police and like i said my wife was in a school system those jobs were pretty comfortable during that time in the sense of they weren't going to downsize people so we didn't have that financial stress or so as society went one way, I mean, there was a lot of bank robberies within the by FTO training, and then you never saw them again, oh. ever. So it's just like spot things uh, to see what you were doing. I mean, obviously, we saw break-ins a lot 
but not armed robberies of people's homes because like home invasions. Yeah. Stuff. Cause yeah. we just didn't see it. And now you kind of see it um, wow. every so often. I mean, I don't follow my former agency on Facebook or Instagram. So I, I try not to pay attention, but occasionally you see it in the news. Like, Oh, South Portland had this. I'm like, and you never saw that before. So sometimes there's just no rhyme or reason. And then you're like, yeah. man, we'd never saw that. I mean, we had, three officer involved shootings in my first couple of years. And then we went 16 years before they had another one. Wow. Uh, and they had a, probably last October of 23, I think it was. So, I mean, yeah. heavy, heavy on one side and then yeah. a significant time until they had another. So just by chance, by luck, heaven knows. And we know what that can we presume we know what that can do to people on both sides. So very interesting. People who are smarter than me can run those analytics, but you're like a lot of mental health calls and how officers were supposed to know how to deal with everything. Yeah. That full that full spectrum, we'll say, of experts and everything yeah. out there, if you will. That was the big change over time where you're like, oh. Spike in mental health calls. Yeah. You yeah. think, oh, traffic and crime. These two books read my life in Maine. There's a statue yeah. book and the uh, traffic violation book. And then over time, you realize, man, we really have to be so-called experts in everything. That was the other, I'll say the second big surprise in the second part of my career. Like, man, we're, we're just doing everything. And this was, I'd guess, probably nationwide. But yeah. through my lens, we're like, we are really just doing everything. When in doubt. Call the oh, police. Cop. Yeah. Yeah. De- describe for those that, for me as well, but but yeah. for those that, that might not totally understand the, what that means, what's your average mental health call? What does that mean? I would say we would get someone who might have suicidal ideations. Okay. So not in the midst of a suicide attempt, but maybe they have a diagnosis. Maybe they don't. They don't know where to go for help. So they don't have a therapist. They don't have anyone, but they know something is just off. And like we just mentioned, who, who do you call when you need some help? Call the police. I'd say my agency was progressive at that time where all officers were made to do a 40-hour CIT training, crisis intervention training. So we have that early like, oh, kind of how to say triage people and what do they need and decide if they need to go somewhere do we have enough to take them against their will or do they just need someone to talk to or was someone calling on their behalf yeah Um, there's there's like a crisis hotline and what what was the bar what's the what's the litmus test for your ability to intervene and take them against their will are they in immediate danger okay do they have do they have a plan or and were they any physical signs of harm? So it'd be that checklist in your head. Do you have a plan? Yes or no? Or do you want to harm yourself or others? Yes or no? And some people would be like, yes, I want to effing kill you. Okay. And really, even if you know you can take them yeah. to the hospital, and it was only to the local hospital that we had you really need to go talk to someone can you come with me to the hospital you need to 
you talk to a psychiatrist or whatever was there and they're like okay it's like and then you proceed to take them over and it wasn't always the best because they may have a quick turnover but it was kind of pass them on to someone who have that professional training if you will yeah and if they resist like i have enough to take you i believe you're going to harm yourself and then you have the proper paperwork to uh do that and it was it was difficult at times uh but generally if someone's calling you or someone's calling uh, yeah yeah, it's a cry for help and that's i think where a lot of that previous time working in the group homes and that mental health came in and some people were just comfortable like like I said, I wasn't a good report writer. Some people loved OUIs, hunting for the drugs. I just was really comfortable on those mental health calls, it just where I naturally fit in. So yeah, you just would kind of work it through. Maybe it had talked to family members to get a statement and, hey, what's been going yeah. on? What do they look like? Are there any medications? You're like, yeah, I'm on dot, dot, dot. Like, okay, yeah. so you, they have some stuff going on. And the surrounding area got better with having maybe a crisis worker mobile crisis worker come out so that was good because going to the hospital to see someone wasn't always the best thing they just needed someone to come out and then we could leave the scene and because i mean we're the cops we have a gun we have a taser i mean we we are a walking use of force essentially and if we could get someone else in that was also the goal and then we also had a behavior health liaison that was hired over time and a lot of the main towns cities did that and i think you saw that in other cities yeah, as well sure, so sure. they either co-respond or handle some of those calls by phone um some people just don't want to see a cop car outside their house yeah yeah so there's a um, good old word stigma people don't want to see the cops outside their house and i obviously my time of reflection you're like oh no big deal you show up you call come crashing to someone's house if it was an active call or whatever but or even when i i mean i lived in my city the first time i went home for lunch like hey i'm just home for lunch new neighbor (laughs) uh nothing going on so you you sometimes don't understand or appreciate the power you have even if it's just the presence and people don't want that on a mental health call sometimes just a phone call for some help so that was that big where's the balance for mental health and then society yells at us for like we don't want cops anymore like well yeah right if we we had someone with who can do it then yay too Uh, yeah yeah, so that was always interesting and how to find that balance to get them help like if we could get them there great Sure. How much were you bringing your work home with you? Even emotionally? I would say not much. Uh, Until my wife would say, hey, you're isolating or you're being an ass. So those were kind of the early cues Mm. that I was kind of off a little. And how many years in was that? We were probably getting into the 14, 15 okay. year right. range. And so she obviously, we, I don't say obvious, but we transitioned into the job together. She didn't marry a cop. Yeah. We kind of worked yeah. through that progression together. So I would talk about some calls. So I wasn't 
closed up about that. So I think she started seeing it, but over time she'd be like, hey. I mean, she, she was waiting. I mean, she's five feet, 100 pounds, but mouth of a pirate, we'll say, in right. uh, laser eyes. But so when she started saying that type of stuff, like, hey, you're being an ass again. Or, I mean, we watch different TV stuff, but you're watching a lot of TV by yourself. And we live in a ranch, so there's not a lot of room to go hide. So just kind of little things like that. And we're responsible for, we were doing eight-hour shifts. So you're responsible potentially four hours before, four hours after for a force if they were short staff. So, I mean, take some time to come down after a shift, regardless of what went on. And then as staffing got low, you're just kind of waiting by the phone. When you knew something was up, you kind of knew where you were in the rotation of getting forced. So I started realizing also I was always on that waiting high when they were going to call again. And that was some of those early indicators the the hamster wheel was always spinning. I was, am I getting getting enough sleep? Am I doing this? I was just not shutting down about work or anything. Right. Why, in retrospect, with the benefit of hindsight, why yeah. do you think that was at that point when theoretically you're moving on a day shift, your days are ideally a bit more predictable, maybe less why at that point was your was the hamster wheel spinning faster do you think um sometimes shifts could be a little more idle so a little more time to think Mm. just idle and i'm sure every department has them some people just wait for the calls to come in and others look for stuff i mean i wasn't super macho cop by any sense i i knew what i did i kind of mixed it up being proactive with the traffic stops and stuff and stopping into the schools. But yeah, I hated being idle, even if I was just driving around town and was called the citywide car. Uh, So I didn't have an area. So I would back up other officers. I mean, I parked, but I didn't like parking. So I needed to be moving. Uh, Especially when I learned I didn't like being idle, either physically idle or mentally idle. Uh, But yeah, the idle mind I learned was, again, in retrospect, a horrible thing for me and then especially I'll probably get a little ahead when i found my first real trigger flashback type of thing that was we'll say when the wheel started falling off my bus my mind okay. uh, what was that, it what was the trigger yeah like a good husband i was folding clothes and i, I never watch police or cop shows especially like cops once i got into the job that type of stuff or the crime shows, but for whatever reason, it was on in the background, the TV I was watching, and I heard the death rattle. I didn't even know if it, what it was because I wasn't looking at it. So when someone in the ambulance, mm. if it was a rescue call or scene, but clearly it was something of someone dying. And I said to my wife, who was in the kitchen, I'm like, oh my God, that is the sound from Officer So-and-So's shooting. I haven't heard that sound in 10 years so this is 2018 august of 2018 and there was a officer involved shooting 2008 
So probably three years into my career at that point. And I'm like, as soon as I heard it, I'm like, that is so-and-so shooting when I rode in the ambulance 10 years ago. So roughly what happened, we dealt with a person, it was actually a mental health call on and off for three days. Almost everyone in the apartment in some form dealt with this mm-hmm. particular individual. And I think I was on a swing shift. So it was, I think, my second overnight. Um, and at that point, the SWAT team had just been called to the house. And I just happened to be ready. So I ran some of their, their gear up. They had surrounded the house. We were there. So this 11 o'clock at night. I was, also, it was on Main Street, we'll say again. And whatever people were doing their gig, I happened to be matched up with one of the SWAT officers as lethal force because he had a shotgun with less lethal rounds. I think beanbag at the time. Mm-hmm. So whatever, halfway through the night, the subject comes out the back of the house. The shotgun runs out back, less lethal. So I'm just standing out front. I hear a snap. Doesn't even register that it was a mm-hmm. that it was a rifle out back. He was doing something that would basically indicate he wanted suicide by death by a cop. By cop. Um, yeah. Until I saw someone come out front. I'm like, oh, that officer's down gearing. Oh, I'm on scene of an officer involved shooting. Mm-hmm. Well, that's weird. And then they roll him up in a gurney, put him in the ambulance. And then an officer next to me who was on my shift goes, hey, Lieutenant, he's essentially a suspect. We need someone to go with him, which was a very correct call. And then that officer couldn't leave his post. And the lieutenant goes, hey, Peter, we need you to go. Okay. Whatever, no big deal. And that was what the sound was wherever he was shot. I mean, it was that gurgling sound and whatever. Rescue is doing their rescue stuff of a gunshot person we're short from where we are we're trauma one medical center so we're a fully equipped medical center here to say the least but i stayed with the person till he succumbed to the injuries which was unique within itself that experience but and then we had a debriefing a couple days later kind of whatever my first one like oh this is unique whatever wasn't on scene for the other two shootings but it wasn't until yeah i was floating the calls i'm like that's that sound Mm. And I'm like, well, that was just weird because I hadn't, I don't know if I didn't really process that, didn't understand how the briefings went. They did something great. And then I kind of got into that mindset of we doing enough for our officers at the time. And then just a series of calls over that coming, I'll say six months or so, it just kept going i think the next one it was a really cold winter heading into 2019 kind of mentioned before we deal with a lot of deceased people for some reason Uh, population is getting a little older so i mean i have had a medical examiner in my phone it wasn't a big deal to call them hey can you roost the body what do you got yep yeah come from your home no big deal and then i mean a separate one i had one in the morning my brother had one in the afternoon they're like Officer corporate, you're having a busy day. Like, no, that was my brother. You just <laughs> in the morning. So, I mean, yeah. it was that common. Yeah. This particular one, cold winter, he was controlled by the apartment complex, super warm, opened the door, just a weird smelling death. Nothing more, nothing less. Most of the ones, no big deal. This one just hit different. Being the officer, who's a really senior day shift, doesn't smell different like yeah just i don't know if he had been there longer whatever but i mean there's always smells of 
people in different various stages of yeah. Death. Decay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So whatever. And then the supervisor shows up. Why are you guys outside? Because you're generally not outside <laughs> at a death scene. Um, right. And it was natural death. And like, sorry, it smells. I mean, we had the door covered and doing what we're supposed to. And then he opens the door and he's like, oh my. I mean, it's without getting too descriptive, you taste death, essentially, which is wow. just gross. Wow. Um, so yeah. we start working the scene and even the funeral home guy shows up and he had this new guy with him um huh. and even they were kind of getting that drive even like even the funeral home guys yeah this one is one of the worst ones i've smelled so at least that was the, like wow okay not just me that one just a bit weird and unfortunately my wife was cooking something that night for supper in that association with that meal sat forever with me wow. it, it just i mean i won't even i won't describe it because i don't want people to have to so yeah, 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 like yeah. You pick pick something you like eating and th- that dark and that smell was, is done forever yeah we, we were so she like and she would forget like oh i'm cooking dead people tonight i'm ah. sorry yeah, because that was uh, yeah, yeah, yeah that's how we processed it um, sure. so she, she, she knew that was understood enough that i had connected that yeah, and you could talk to her about it. You were able to yeah, tell her, "Hey, this is yeah. what's going on with me." Yeah, and, and just the next one was again another simple call by our standards. Just another. It was an overdose of a recent high school grad. The other officer actually mm-hmm. dealt with the the scene. I dealt with the mom. Apparently, she knew me from my say working the town you grew up in. Apparently, she lived in the neighborhood I grew up in. She's like, mm-hmm. "Officer Corbett," and that was three or four hours of just working with her. But she took it hard. And then like two months later, she attempted suicide at her son's grave. Luckily, she didn't complete it, uh, but she did have a suicide note, which in my mind is always a higher level. And that was one of the last calls on that go around. Like, there's something not right here. Just too much. Um, what, what does that mean? You mean societally or like, were you thinking bigger or just in your mind? In, in okay. my mind, it, it, it just, I knew I was starting to a never emotional person, uh, but I understood yeah. I was starting to get emotional migraines, kind of like dry heaving at work, arguments with coworkers that I historically got along with, signs, I didn't know what they were signs of, great hindsight. Just stuff. I'm like, literally, like Sarge, and I was open with my supervisor, one that happened to be assigned to me on my five day work cycle. So that was good. Sock, I don't know what it is. Something's going on. Just I'm trying to work through it. He's like, okay, just keep me aware, and he would check in on me. But that was really the that first part of like, I, I don't know what's up, but it something is up in me in a sense in my mind and talk about just being tired all the time just yeah tired emotional right Um, yeah i knew it was the calls i knew it was the work and the the clear sign was i was driving to work one way to april nice day and i went pretty close to uh, where i worked within a couple miles first mile nice and good second mile i start bawling crying my eyes out as i get close to work i'm like well, fuck, wow. this isn't normal. You shouldn't cry as you get close to work. And I just drive right by. Like, what do we, that thing you always want to do 
even uh, your a, a good mindset like right like, yeah like <laughs> get the middle finger, yeah put up the middle finger and like yeah, right f you not going to work i'm like sorry just not happen i'm like i think it's time to get some help you should not be emotionally reactive just approaching work on a nice sunday or saturday i think it was my wife was out of the country on vacation my two close supports a friend who doesn't work in law enforcement and someone else they were i didn't want to bug them i'm like i think i need to see someone about this stuff but i don't want to involve work so i did the secret squirrel stuff trying to find someone who maybe sees officers mm-hmm. No, we're not going to do workers' comp, blah, blah, blah. Cool. And then I quickly I found someone, and then I walk in the first appointment. Yeah, if I'm doing the order right. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to report this as workers' comp. She's like, oh, uh, I don't do that. She's like, okay. This is like half hour into the appointment. She's like, we could continue this chat, but if you're going to go that route, probably better off not continue. <laughs> we don't. This relationship is not going to work. Explain that. I don't understand. So, so she was she didn't want you to file it as workers' comp because she, she didn't want to go into a therapeutic relationship of treatment if I was going to go the workers' comp route. Basically, she didn't want to deal with workers' comp. Just the administrative headache of it. Administrative headache. Yeah, okay. and I think if I remember, I I don't know if I we told my union reps yet. Or was just after that, I'd gone and I say this in a good way. I'm like, fuck it. Work needs to know. I had a good childhood, good upbringing, no personal trauma, physical or mental. I knew this is work related in my mind. Yeah. If it was proven to be later, so be it. But I knew it was work related. I also knew that's not what people (laughs) do normally is report and i know it's mental health based you don't go into your agency and go yeah i need yeah. help yeah but eventually i talked texted two supervisors who knew something was up or something was brewing we'll say i think they gave me some freedom put me off sick the next three days texting my union president and a rep hey this is what's up what do we do and then we walked in three days later to the pd and First report of injury for mental health, basically declaring, hey, something's going on. You need to pull me off the road. And that was June 2019. And how did they react? Yeah. That lieutenant was actually pretty good. He goes, yeah, it's, it's denied. And it was like, oh, who's coming in? There's a big like secret thing amongst like union and the leadership. Union president, I'm like, just tell them. They're going to know in a couple of days. It's, uh, again, that weird introverted me was like, nope, just tell them it's me. It's, it's a big deal. But for me, it was no, just tell them they didn't know what to do. And the one part really still burns me was the chief, the deputy chief, and the lieutenant who I think would have known what to do. I think their only real question was, are you suicidal? Are you yeah. suicidal? Yeah, sure. And why I say it burns me was, I don't think they would have known what to do. If I had said yes. Huh. Yeah. And and the lieutenant, because he had still covered, he was the professional standards, who wasn't necessarily working the road, but he would cover shifts. Um, I I think he would have came up with something 
to do if I'd said yeah. yes. Yeah. But the other two had been off any type of interactive policing for decades. <laughs> they just, what else do you do if someone does it? Well, let's ask that question. I bet if I'd said yes, they would have freaked out and brought me to main med like we do. Right. Um, like we do the people on the road. But that's right. all, as I've learned and knew at that time, that's not what you do with people in the mental health profession. And that was first report of injury coming off the road the first time. Just a quick thing was eventually they found a, what do they call that? Fit for duty mm-hmm. to come off the road. And eventually he got to the same question. I'm like, oh, okay, good. We got to the question you really wanted. Am I suicidal? Are you trying to take my gun away or not? They right. did not. I was off the road for about nine months. I found a therapist before because I didn't trust the city. It's not their real house. Worked with that person. Went back in early February of 2020. Transitioned slowly. That chief had left. We hired a, a new one. This one was super great. During that integration meeting, a city official was like, so do you want career counseling? I'm like, no, I haven't even tried to come back to the road. And this new chief, who was from Mass, he's like, were either cops or were not? So it was really blatant. I think he had done some response during the Boston Marathon trainings. Mm. So he had seen some of these effects on people. Really supportive. Offered for me to go down to the Boston area for group support meetings. We never worked out because of COVID. But work a couple days in the PD. Work some double cruiser days with some co-workers and some single days. So really good transition back into patrol work. So that's what we did when I went back to the road. The thing called COVID hit in 2020. So all that mall area looked like a ghost town. We did some weird shift work to minimize people at the PD. Now I can say it's probably weird risk-taking behavior for me. I went on a lot of calls because I didn't like being idle. So we're other officers each had their own area. I would bounce around as the extra person. So they're like, yeah, I don't have to go back someone up. I just right. kept busy. So that idleness yeah. was, again, something I didn't want to do. So I just kept going. I don't know if I was looking for a call, something dangerous to happen, but I just kept going and going and going during that whole summer time. Uh, crops were not well-liked because of the yeah, issue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was the thing at that time. Did you have protests in South Portland? We had one that came in from the high school, which was unique, and they marched to the PD. Weird and mostly white town. We were still kind of mixed at that point. But yeah, uh, next town over, we sent officers, uh, a lot of regional well, mutual aid stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. which was a more. Um, as protests get in our area. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, a lot of officers were sitting around as standby officers, but um, they came and said their piece, and um, there were some Black teachers uh, that were there, um, and uh, people said their piece, peaceful, whatever. We treated it like a real protest, so that was good. And then even towards the end of that summer, I knew, Mike, I can't keep doing this. This is to just something not there and the officer at the high school it was time for him to go back to the road he he didn't want to be up there anymore i think he wanted to pursue like a supervisor role so i got that position up at the high school as a school resource officer 
Uh, I'd filled in a couple of times for him. So that was pretty cool. Although the most awkward school year ever, half the population, they split the days in half because of COVID uh, to yeah. minimize stuff. We were still dealing with uh, the whole BLM stuff. I don't think I saw eye to eye with the administration. I was replacing a six-year officer. They didn't want me parking out front the, in the cruiser or greeting the kids. So there's some oh wow. some societal issues, I think, that played into it a little. What did that do for you? I mean, just because at that point, you're kind of, you're not a, in a delicate place, but you're a little sensitive, right? And you've got some stuff you're working through. So to have that layered on top, was it yeah. irrelevant or was it did it complicate things further? It didn't complicate. I mean, I called my supervisor and like, hey, they don't want me greeting kids. Huh. Like, the job of a school resource officer is be visible. And I still had my, I hadn't gone to a soft uniform yet. So, I mean, I was patrol outer carrier. I'm like, I mean, you just don't know if you're going to return the next year anyway. So it's expensive to switch over that right. whole thing. Right. Um, so it still had that look, which I'm sure wasn't a fan of. But like, okay, they don't want you out there. We want this position to continue. I mean, there wasn't one when I was in high school, but this had been yeah. a significant time. So yeah, we yeah, wanted yeah. to continue that relationship. So we, on our side, agreed to just stand down a little. My sergeant, who kind of was my supervisor, is like, so you hiding yet in your office? I'm like, no, but I'm standing as far away as possible in essence. So wow. I knew my job. I mean, I always had that what if stuff goes down. I, I knew what I was going to do when bad came through the door, regardless if I was X location or Y location. Right, but yeah, right. it was kind of like, mm, okay. We well, I guess let, let me ask this another way. Also, did it, did it help to have a problem set that was removed from the mental health stuff that you've been dealing with and kind of the downtime, like now, or, or was it, was it worse to have something where it's like, ah, this is like a politically delicate situation and I'm already kind of stressed out and thinking, you know, my, I'm having trouble with my thoughts right now. So I don't need this on top of it. No, I think it was just, oh, this is just a new adventure. Okay. All right. To, to go to go on, like, I started as, oh, some people want to be a detective, drug agent, whatever. Almost nobody wants to go work in the schools and deal with the kids. Right. Right. And for me, because I, I mean, my interview wasn't that great, but when I talked to the chief one-on-one, -on -one, he's like, oh, oh, I didn't know all this about you. I it just did better with a one-on-one -on -one conversation. But gotcha. afterward, I mean, he was screaming throughout the PD, Peter's going back to school because it was my high school I was going back yeah. to work with. And I knew some of the teachers still and some of the staff. So yeah, I, it was all perspective. Like, okay, you don't want me to stand there? So be it. I'll go stand near the main stairway and wow. do what I do over there. So no, it's just a different perspective. And if that's what the admin wanted that day for that cycle, whatever. Yeah. Um, and there wasn't, it was a quiet school year in essence because nobody was, was there. <laughs> yeah, nobody's there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of times that I filled them before, there's a lot of track kids walking around, but they were doing like tracking. So if there was an outbreak in one classroom, they could isolate people to see where the outbreak was so right I mean, right it was a quiet school year i mean i would walk around about three miles a day walk in the halls and you watch on camera so in that sense it was a nice break irregardless of i mean if you go into a high school you got to know what happens you got to have a game plan if if bad yeah. happens yeah and we see that so and or what doesn't 
sometimes. So by no sense, it was a mental break, but it was just a different role and I enjoyed it. Well, did then, you feel stronger after it? Did you feel uh, or through that assignment? Was it was it nice to have time alone also and just, hey, I'm a one man shop and I can, you know, you're doing a job, but you're not. Yeah, you know. I, I essentially uh, said to people, it's like, it's, it's just like a patrol beat, except it's a foot mm-hmm. beat. You're not in a cruiser. I mean, that particular chief says, oh, you're getting a cruiser. And that was the first year they had a cruiser up at the school. The previous officer didn't. So I viewed it as this is my beat. It just happens to be on foot. And that was it. Walk outside, walk inside, interact as much in a weird school year as possible. I started as a transition year. And I mean, there was no sports. There was no after school activities. I mean, it was just, if, if you can, well. We all so weird and different. And this school was just a microcosm of that society as well. And um, I mean, kids would have medical issues and drop and we would address it just like it was on the road. So it was it, it is a microcosm of society. Yeah, so now, yeah. you know, all the issues that go on in the city. Now you have that much more information because you have all the school stuff as well. So yeah. um, there's a lot of information. But uh, yeah, I started as a my patrol area. It's just Happened to be on foot. <laughs> and what were you doing at this point for your mental health? Did you have regiments that you had started? Like, what was what was your what were your what was your battle rhythm to keep your? Did you have exercises that you did? Did you have a routine that you did? Like, what what was yeah, it? Yeah, uh, reason. I was. I mean, good seasons, good time of year. I was still cycling. I was still seeing my therapist probably virtually been switched over at that point, like everything else. But yeah, cycling has been my key for physical stuff the entire time. And that was probably that best part along with the therapy. I mean, still in therapy, but understanding therapy was important and being able to embrace it versus being voluntold. Hey, yeah. you need to do you need to do therapy. I remember when I was on that first light duty stint, <coughs> a coworker come up What's therapy like when you're ready to do it? I don't want to say it's easy, but the, the, the work is much easier to accept versus being pulled off the road to go do that type of stuff. I, I was so ready at that point to work on how I mentally process things, how I just work stuff through my mind. Like, oh, you never analyze those situations those tough calls what are one of the tough calls you didn't even know you probably needed to process maybe prepping to come across a body in the water in various states just all that stuff when you're ready i found it much easier to embrace that work and that was the point uh so just that constant therapy and embracing different aspects of that schoolwork and just keeping those things going. Looking you, into yeah. So no, no, sorry, sorry, finish that. Yeah, and just embracing different aspects of uh, the SRO stuff. You could do a lot of online trainings at that time because you, you had. I mean, they, the school days a little shorter too, so I had a, an hour or so at the end of the day to do a lot of that trainings that. A lot of agencies were putting out nationwide too, so there was a lot of time to do a do a lot of that stuff, which was fun and kind of continued to look into that. I'd already taken like the uh, crisis 
instant management trading, the SISM trading. So I was really into the peer support thing at that point and knowing we weren't doing a good job or the best we could at my former agency. So what were you learning through therapy? What were your takeaways of how to process things? Like, did were you getting kind of a methodology yeah, that was I mean, helping you process things? Or was it, you know, like, what, what was the takeaways for you that you could see? Yeah, I mean, the, the, at this point, I mean, again, I, I end up coming off the road again. But the first time it was a very structured cognitive behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. uh, I believe is what it was. And really turning my negative self thoughts into positive thinking, like, mm. hey, you went through something, and that's okay. And how to turn the thought process around, and really looking at how I thought of things that I had done or viewed situations, and it was a lot of that. I mean, there's a lot of writing exercise and especially for someone who's not a writer i mean there was things i called the sound call the officer involved shooting each one i labeled different things and i still have some of those writings on my laptop and it also wasn't about the grammar but it was writing things down and then reading them out loud oh how did that make you feel how did you feel expressing asking for help in a very anti not anti in a traditional profession where you don't ask for help in our agency they had dealt with it very differently 25 years ago because of where that person was in their career sure and obviously mental health is a little more talkable these days but still not in these professions so just looking at all aspects of life essentially even though this was a work thing just looking at everything and anything in a way. And since I was open to it, like, hey, what do you want to analyze this week? Hmm, This. So that was really the goal. And not overthink things because me, but I think a lot of first responders, you overthink things. You had a con, you're like, I'm going to wait for hours. I could have, should have did this, stood here dot 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 yeah, dot yeah, yeah. so i mean it took time before i realized the range was connected to that shooting really struggling at the range because every time you fired a rifle it brought you back to that even much as i liked going to the range and shooting regardless of rifle or handgun it was stressful it took me forever before i realized oh and then working through that type of stuff um, and why that was so hard until really the, when it was came off the road uh, for good. So, um, yeah, it's just, I mean, the CBT is a very focused program, I guess. And I still have all that information I kept. Once in a while, I'll look over it I'm like, oh, man. But if you're, if you're fighting that process, uh, I suspect it's not going to work. And I remember when I worked at, with the high school kids, some of the clients were going through that process. I'm like, oh, that's what that was. That's reworking how you think about yourself. And if things hadn't gone as you had planned, I'm like, oh, my career is starting to lose its its direction or or tread 
that's how we worked. And this first therapist had worked at the VA before he was at this particular practice. So I also felt comfortable with, okay, he's worked with a particular population right, um, right. That, that understands um, our uniqueness, if you will. Yeah, um, yeah, the, yeah. The profession of arms. Yeah, absolutely. We would have left the center at times. <laughs> <laughs> right. What What was the resolution to your career? Did it leave a bittersweet taste? Was it Was it a bad parting, or were you able to leave it on your own terms? I felt I left it on my own terms. I, I knew I was done. Um, when I went back to the road after I came out of the school, two shifts, I was a complete hot mess, having a breakdown, literally my own driveway after a dive training day. <clears throat> I, I got forced back in and I knew I had another, what are you crying? And my, I told my wife to come out, I'm like, eh. And I knew if I reported it, I was done and okay with that. I felt like a lot of times in dealing with the city, I was in the adult in this situation um, through my eyes. So I got, I, I know it's done. It, it, it I can't bear it anymore because you can't see my injury. Um, I can't be running in the red, like, and I say like, think of like RPMs in a car. I can't be at ten all the time. Um, yeah. That's not healthy for me. It's not healthy for my coworkers, my family. As a when I went to a first responder center, wellness center one of the people there like not everybody's career is going to be 25 years and that's okay and i'd really come to terms with that you know what it's okay Uh, i end up getting approved for disability through the main retirement center so i'll get benefits up to my 25 year number and workers compound in my favor and the city decided to terminate me because I didn't take their job offers outside the PD. So there's a lot of different pillars that we're deciding and they're independent of each other, but I'm healthier. It's still a process, but I'm much better than I was when I realized the first time. Uh, Regardless how this works out, I can't continue down this road. So uh, I'm I'm happy and I'm just continuing that transition phase right now. Like, what am I going to do? That next phase, I don't have to work. Yeah. We, we get a fair amount of disability percentage, so we're okay in that. City kind of wanted me to work, and I wasn't ready. What did they want that. you to do? What oh, there's all kind of fun mm-hmm. stuff. Some were like park ranger, bus driver. I, I don't think I could drive something that big. Part of it was I don't think I could shut being a police officer off. If there was an issue on the bus, uh, you can't shut off that. I mean, it's been two years since I've actively been policing and you're still like, oh, put your phone down in the car car next to you because we're hands-free state. And the real interesting ones were, they want to be an animal control officer. So I didn't want to go back to work at the PD, who works out of the agency okay. and drive a police looking vehicle, which would be super weird. If I saw something going down with an officer and they needed help, I'm jumping out. I mean, that brain still works. And the real kicker was they wanted me to be a dispatcher. So the dispatch covers um, three towns and six agencies, police and fire for both. So you're going to get all the trauma for all three. And there's some logistics issues too. I mean, it's a contract for another town now since they blended. So, I mean, nobody thought that was a good idea, let alone me. Um, So 
after a while it became kind of silly season as they say like you're just trying to shuffle me off the police board if you will i mean i knew i was uh, holding a position but we had a really strong contract especially once it was found to be workers comp related work related i could stay in that white duty position to the 25 years if need be i believe we would have worked an agreement with the union and the city to for a buyout but they did not like the ability that we had and they had no prior history with anybody uh, i didn't have anything bad in my docket there was no real troublesome issues so no discipline issues so was a good candidate in, in a sense so luckily after about six it was a six month wait for the disability so once that got through i'm like we're going to be okay and that started about a month and a half later basically the next pay cycle for the state so that was really comforting and then we settled worker comp workers comp and all labor issues because there was some questionable moves and we let the union lawyer deal with it we just settled and walked away with it are you bitter about how it all ended my agency former agency did the best they could i knew there was no blueprint i didn't have a blueprint for what to do the city i'm always gonna be bitter we had officer suicide on 11 9 21 and he was one of the officer involved shootings that i talked about early in my career and we came to learn that he struggled almost that entire time i actually ended up talking to his mother um for about a year in some phone conversations um so through very awkwardly a support group like and she left early one day like i think that was my coworker's mom and they're like yeah and then we were put in contact with each other so that was a very helpful support mm-hmm. she was so happy that i was getting help even though her son <clears throat> couldn't or wasn't able to and he said can i say the word suicide with you ma'am she's like yeah we can't even i know we talked about suicide calls with the public we can't yeah. even look our co-workers and go hey you good are you suicidal like i talked about the admins that's the stuff that gets me angry now we can drop those questions no big i did tons of times in my career but we can't look at our co-workers and go are you good no are you really good are you suicidal Do, and he was going to work one day and someone who shows up half hour early ready to go and having an empty seat in the chair in the classroom is weird and then learning that he took his own life mm-hmm. is really i wasn't i didn't process it and that's where like this is why people need to talk about stuff and that is kind of the view on things i take now what can we do to help i say officers but first responders that's why i'm bitter at the city if i didn't have i had a lot of good support family i was open with my family i was open with my kids when i went away for 28 days to mine was mental health but this place dealt with whatever addictions you have that's going to work on himself other people say yeah so and so went to training now i went to work on myself so i 
for whatever reason, my introvert wife, I've been really open about this topic. We can't talk about what first responders need for support and help. And that irritates me beyond compare. Uh, so I'm happy how I got out. Yeah. I'm not happy how administrators, <clears throat> most administrators, and I only have my view. I only have my lens. Everybody has a job to do, but you. if I didn't have something, heaven knows if I could have ended up like my coworker and then have yeah. two suicides, you, you, you messed up. You can only turn a blind eye so much. I didn't go that direction. Never have been suicidal, but man, I had really good support. And for whatever reason, he, he didn't go that way. I mean, it was in the news. Lewiston, Maine had an active shooter. And a lot of first responders went and responded. I'm like, I'm not working anymore. Thank God I don't have to respond to that shit. But there's going to be a lot of first responders in this yeah, state. Yeah. Region. I mean, I think they came from a lot of places. <clears throat> they're going to need help. Um, at, <clears throat> at some point, they're going to realize, hopefully, um, they should talk about that. And I want to be there for those people, um, for that prevention, because... It took 10 years before I realized, shit, things aren't so well. Yeah. And so and everybody needs something different. So, yeah, that's the where the irritation from the city aspect. I got lucky. My process worked out. Let's help you up when you're ready. Um, so it's kind of like, yay for me. But let's help you out when you're ready. Yeah. That's when I yeah. think it works the best. So there's a there's a fire there. I'm just going to figure out how to access it. <laughs> So if you were king for a day uh -huh. and you have control <clears throat> at whatever level you think control should happen, whether it's the federal government, state government, local municipality, whatever level seems appropriate, as far as you can tell, if you're king for a day, what do you implement? Is it something where there needs to be a culture change? Is it something where SOPs have to change? Is it something where the unions need to do something better, the city administrations or, or, or whatever, whatever the governmental administration is, needs to do something better? Is it a legislative thing? What If you're king for a day, what do you implement? What do you wave your wand over and say, this changes and that's going to solve this or at least mitigate a lot of the problems with it? Yeah, I didn't guess that was going to be a question. That is, that is, that is oh, that's a good one. That is, as much as we hate being voluntold, not we, I'm not <clears throat> we anymore. And that's a, also learning to talk about stuff in the past tense. Getting the buy-in at all levels. You need the prevention education. This is why it's important to talk about suicide and first responders look at the signs i mean i had signs of migraines grinding teeth mm -hmm. I, everything and no one called me out on it sick days call people out their shit but the real education bring in the mental health professionals the clinicians and mandate that part of it so yeah you've mentioned laws eh, the laws yeah yeah policies whatever click 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 red policy sign off on it right um, right bring back the trainings where you have to sit in a room and listen to 
imposter syndrome people like me who don't have a lot of sexy calls as they listen to Tom and his wife on a podcast. Settle me. Yeah, I'll I'll secure that. And then they're like, I didn't think you're even going to bring me on. I'm like, I'm just a regular dude. But there is that regular dude or do that concept where we're just the people answering calls all the time. It is prevention education. However you get that mandated, doesn't matter because you have to get to the office, the frontline workers, the real frontline workers to believe who are experiencing that trauma. Hey, this is okay to talk about. And then bring in the people who can educate them. This is the science behind it. And then finding ways, safe ways for those frontline first responders to get that help. I don't want PTSD on my permanent record. I I knew I was Hmm. done, so I didn't care if it showed up on my mental history, but how do I talk to somebody without derailing my career? I lost my gun the second time I reported it. Hmm. Yeah, that sucked. Yeah. But I knew I was done. Um, How for people who just want some prevention help, knowing they're not going to lose their careers over asking for any type of help. So that's the magic. How to how to still get help and not explode your career. We're all going to be done our careers at some point. Right. No matter what. So that's the magic thing for the day. I don't care about the laws, the policies, because we all know how good those are sometimes implemented. Right. What what works best for the people who need it most? If that means just bringing people in, kicking the administrators out of the room. Hey, what do you want to talk about? What do you really need? How do we get you the help yeah. you want? Uh, <clears throat> and how, and how do we do it to keep your job as long as you want to do it? Um, and I think that's the magical question. And they're clearly not doing it right. I never had any mental health training for myself at the academy. I mean, that was almost 20 years ago but i've been told it hasn't changed so how to get that stuff updated on a more common thing people have what they want i mean we are pushing it at other levels the general public gets it we need it for first responders i, I don't know if they're i have the answer but it's, it's a the, tough one yeah, yeah. Ask, ask, ask the people who need it what they really want yeah um, yeah well, and that that also presumes that they're self-aware enough to know they need it, right? Yeah, and I don't think they are sometimes. Tricky. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's uh, having people like me, which is out of my normal wheelhouse, who are comfortable talking about it, yeah. which why I am, I don't know, as a lifelong introvert, like I said. Mm. But like, hey, if someone can understand, oh, it's okay to talk about it. Go find someone get the help then uh, as uh, uncomfortable as this kind of was for me good go talk to dot 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 and go from there because it kept me out of going down the rabbit hole and i'm definitely better off for it now i i think this first off thanks man thanks for sharing all this this i mean uh, as an introvert i really (laughs) appreciate you sharing all this and and i think you're bringing up so many personal points that I think a lot of people are going to relate to 
you've kind of already said it, but I'll just give it its own unique moment. Is there anything you want people to take away from this that we haven't covered? It's, it's going to sound weird, but first responders are people too. We mm. have the same problem as the rest of society. Um, <clears throat> just because we put on those uniforms, whatever it is, we deal with the same stuff. We probably hide it, but we're your neighbors. I know some people may not like all that, that stuff, but <laughs> at some point we, 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 that stuff is going to rear its ugly head, regardless of how you deal with it. And that's kind of where I was at. That's, I decided to deal with it. Some people don't. Yeah. And that's a choice for, for, for people too. And now I can say I'm medically retired to most people and I'm getting better at saying that versus I'm just retired. Mm -hmm. I got out mm -hmm. in a positive way and I'm happy for that. It's a big deal. Mm -hmm. That's a big deal, man. Thank you. Thanks for coming on and for doing this. Thanks for having me. That was Peter Corbett's profile in Havoc. Um, I was so touched. That just sounds fucking wimpy and weird and all that to say, but I was touched by Peter coming on the show and saying what he had to say. The selflessness, the sincerity, the humility, the transparency, and the um, heartfelt concern for his fellow officers um, was touching to me. Um, so was the, you know, the moments of uh, raw humanism that pop up, you know, the different mothers that he had talked to after their sons had been dead. There were a couple of those moments. And it, and I think he, you know, um, at the end of a, you know, a long conversation, I'm struck by how much routine trauma the average police officer onboards, you know, and it doesn't find exceptional. Um, whereas to the, you know, I, I, uh, people have said this more articulately and better than I'm about to, but you know, the average person sees something traumatic once. It's like the worst moment of their life, or the worst moment of their year, or the worst moment of their month. And to the average police officer, that's every single day. And looking at what that the mental health toll is. Um, is interesting. I was thinking about while I was listening to Peter, I was thinking about what that means in, in the scope of, of human history. And I was thinking of the stiff upper lipped Brits, you know, from World War One, World War Two, or even stiff upper lipped Americans from the greatest generation. And obviously not everybody in the greatest generation was storming the beaches of Normandy, but to those that were fighting and were out there and doing stuff, you know, the amount of, um, pick your word, repressed or disciplined mindsets that allowed them to cope with what they saw, what they did, and drive on is impressive. Um, we are definitely in a, um, a period of time where Oprah has taken hold of a set of culture. And by that, I mean we are 
much more aware of pop psychology, pop therapy, and um, there's a natural healthy skepticism, I think, of that in the profession of arms because we understand that while there's a comforting, let's call it just for sake of clarity, kind of feminine energy that is crucial and necessary and healthy and healing, it also has to be repressed or disciplined or subverted if you're going to get back out there and go hard charging. So in the professional arms, we are skeptical of how much of that to onboard in our own personal lives. Yet, we're also in a time of human history where a lot of us in the West are very fascinated with improving performance and extending optimal performance past, you know, the prime years of your life and and really having longer and better and more fruitful careers. And to do that, you have to be holistic. You have to be able to look at, you know, the emotional, the physical, the mental, the spiritual, and find a way to perform better. And it's tough to say that the ability to at least somewhat self-diagnose to the point that you can get help when needed, know how and when to pull what lever to get the help you need. Again, from everything from physical care to mental, spiritual, psychological is, is important and increasingly so. And that's not just a societal, cultural shift that is responsible for that. We, we are seeing that that is a way of performing better. And that's kind of where, well, as I was listening to Peter, I was thinking that's kind of where um, he and I think a lot of us that are Gen X find ourselves is we're kind of caught between a more stoic mindset and um, you know, kind of this new and improved and uh, desire for high performance. And yes, there are always people that can take advantage of that and we'll look for any reason to shirk responsibility or what have you. But what Peter, I think, is speaking to or came across to me was, you know, that when you really want to be doing the job well and you enjoy it, you know, that does not inoculate you to those stresses and to the um, need to take care of yourself mentally. So Peter at the end talked about, he's like, oh, that's a good question when I asked him about his king for a day solutions. And as he was talking, I obviously was trying to think myself. I was like, based off what he said, what would I do if I was king for a day? And like him, I'm a little bit of a loss to to say because it is tough to mandate something like this top down. Um, and by tough, I mean I don't know that it's that effective. You know, um, as Peter pointed out, when he was ready for therapy, he was ready for it, and he got into it and it was easy and that was better in his experience than being voluntold to go do stuff. I don't know. Um, There is a part of me that feels like so much of this has to, so much of that resilience has to start earlier in life that maybe by the time you reach adulthood, it's sometimes tough to um, you know, it's tough to implement corrective action 
it's not impossible. It's just it's tough to do something and scale that kind of corrective action uh, to a, in, encompass an entire police force or an entire department, an entire culture of the profession of arms. There's a part of me that wonders if, you know, um, not that you would be inoculated from, you know, mental stress um, and, and, you know, PTS kind of stuff uh, from what you're exposed to in childhood or, or uh, you know, being raised in a certain way. But I do wonder if you start to learn coping mechanisms and uh, yeah, I guess that's the best way to put it, coping mechanisms um, at an early age that could help you later on in life. Um, I'd be, and I, and I don't necessarily know what those are, but I wonder if you can start to build, if you build a roadmap early in a child's life, if that allows them a framework and infrastructure to lean on later in life when, if they go into a profession of arms, they encompass, they, they encounter some of these um, stressful, traumatic situations. And I think there's a host of things that can be coping mechanisms introduced in a child's life. Again, I'm talking out of my ass here, but I, I'm just thinking out loud. But I feel like a spiritual grounding which I suppose could be religious in nature, but I do think a spiritual grounding is a way of coping with, um, would be a good coping mechanism for when you get older and if you go into these walks of life. Um, certainly a parental discipline, um, you know, having good role models to emulate who respond to stress well uh, in a productive manner. I think one of the points Peter brought up talking about turning negative self-talk into positive self-talk is important. Um, again, thinking out loud here, probably the less one relies on alcohol as a coping mechanism and is exposed to that as a child, probably the better for them as they get older. I don't know. Again, I'm saying this not to pontificate or preach. I'm saying it mostly as a thought experiment. What would you do? What things need to be inculcated early in a child's life so that if they end up in the profession of arms, or even if not, but if they happen to experience traumatic instances, what's going to make them more resilient? What's going to make them healthier? What's going to give them a framework and infrastructure on which they can lean to survive those situations, thrive in spite of those situations, or um, leverage those situations to their advantage? I don't know. Um, but a lot of food for thought. Anyway, um, really glad Peter came on the show. Okay, we started off this episode by thanking this episode's first sponsor, Second Mission Foundation. It's time to thank now time to thank this episode's second sponsor, Veterans Repertory Theater. Veterans Repertory Theater is so many things. Mostly it's my nonprofit. <laughs> but where to start when I talk about Vet Rep? Um, Veterans Repertory Theater, which has only been around for like 10 minutes. We're a very new entity if you don't know about us. Um, our mission is to reinvigorate American theater really through the stories, skills, talents, 
of America's veterans. We are not here to help veterans. We are veterans that are here to help theater, to help audiences, to help you enjoy more of your Friday and Saturday nights. And to do that, we select, assess, develop, produce veteran playwrights and artists in live theater and immersive art performances. So more than telling only war stories or focusing solely on art therapy, VetRep delivers to audiences intimate, impactful performances as whimsical, hilarious, absurdist, and jarring as the veteran community that created them. For everything you want to know about VetRep, go to VetRep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, VetRep.org. The best thing to do on the homepage is just scroll down a little bit. You'll see the option to subscribe for free to our literary blog. And when you do that, every single day in your email inbox, you will receive a little piece of veteran writing. It'll be fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, or sometimes just a picture of veteran artwork followed by a bunch of shameless plugs of whatever it is we have to hawk or promote at that moment. So go to vetrep.org and sign up for our literary blog today. We have a lot of big news coming down the pike, none of which I can talk about right now, but we got a lot of cool things coming. Okay, uh, I need to thank our producer, Mike Neal, for putting this episode together. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of everyone at Havoc Journal. Our thanks to Peter Corbett, and we will see you next time for another Profile in Havoc.